Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June, we're running our annual Radiothon, when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education and also to question the entanglement, the current entanglement of religion with the state, which is undermining our public system. And uh, today, for our press release 927, we have a blast from the past. 1987-88 budget papers. Ray Nielsen, who was a financial analyst amongst other things, um, used to analyse the uh, the uh, funding uh, for the uh, private schools and public schools over the or many many years. And in 1987-88, it breached the one billion mark. Well, it's a lot more than that now. But we thought you would just remind you uh, that Ray Nielsen wrote a very interesting uh, press release back in 87-88. Didn't get it into the papers, of course, but now Trevor Cobald, who is doing the same sort of work for public education, is getting a lot more coverage than the dogs ever did, and we'll, um, we'll be referring to that later in this program. But um, first of all, we'll go over to Jeff, who's going to remind us of our blast from the past. Over to you, Jeff. Well, thanks, Jean. This is a blast from the past uh, from 1987, 88. Uh, the state aid hits the $1 billion mark from an old press release from the dogs. Um, and it starts out, dogs have always opposed taxpayer funding for private schools because it leads not only to separation of children on sectarian lines, discrimination against the disadvantaged, social and economic inequalities, but also entanglement of religion with the state. What dogs said would happen in 1964 is happening. In recent weeks, Trevor Cobol, Chris Bonner and others from the Save Our Schools group have exposed the extraordinary inequalities now caused by the billions pouring into the private sector. But on the 21st of September 1987, Ray Nielsen, president of the dogs, uh, issued the following press release. Direct financial assistance to the private school system for the first time will hit the staggering figure of over $1 billion in a financial year during 1987-1988. What started as a trickle is now a raging flood. The priest has truly invaded the Treasury. Federal government commenced funding private schools in the states in 1964-65 with an amount of $2.7 million. Now, federal grants alone are, are to hit the $1 billion mark. That is to say, state aid has gone from virtually nothing to a billion dollars per annum in less than 25 years. 
If we add the assistance given by the states and the Northern Territory to the private education sector, direct aid to private schools from government sources will be in excess of $1.5 billion in 1987-88. If indirect assistance is added to direct assistance, example, payroll tax and land tax exemptions, municipal rates exemption, use of public schools resources, the cost of private education to the taxpayer could be between $1.75 billion and $2 billion. Private schools promised over 20 times better increase than public schools from federal government in 1988 calendar year. An examination of government documents indicates that the federal government has promised to give private school students over 20 times better increase for public schools uh, pupils in 1988. It is the latest budget the federal government has promised to give public schools pupils a read increase of $2 per pupil, whereas a $42.90 per pupil increase is promised to private school pupils. That is, over 20 times more favourable treatment is being given to private school pupils than to public school pupils by the Hawke government. The six Hawke budgets have promised private schools a per pupil increase of over $662 per pupil, whilst public schools have only been promised $116 per pupil. Hawke government is worse than last Fraser government for public schools, is the headline from 1987. A study of the percentage share of federal expenditure specifically allocated to public and private schools for recurrent and capital programs in the last Fraser year, 1981-82, and the latest Hawke budget indicates a large cut to the public system share of funds and a large increase in the share of funds going to private schools. The public school system percentage share of funds specifically given to sectors in the last Fraser financial year was 49.8%. This public school system share has been cut to 43.5% in the latest Hawke budget. Whilst public schools, private schools have had their percentage share lifted from 50.2 in the last year of Fraser to 56.5 in the latest, latest Hawke budget. Conclusion, as predicted, state aid has undermined one of the most important institutions in our society, the public education system. Instead of Hawke's incitement to privatisation of education, we should, uh, we should mark the bicentenary with a vigorous promotion of public education and abolition of state aid to parasitic private sector institutions. Private schools are a cancer in the body politic, and the greatest event we could wish for in the bicentennial year would be the abolition of aid to private schools if we want Australia to go forward as a viable, heterogeneous, de democratic, peaceful and just society. Back to the present. According to The Guardian of the 16th of February 2022, on the basis of the latest calculations of direct recurrent funding of private schools, the average cost of a private school student to the taxpayer is $13,189. There are approximately... 1,407,962 private school students in Australia. That means on a very conservative estimate, it costs the taxpayer $18.5 to separate our next generation on the basis of class, colour and creed in Australia. And that figure does not take into account the capital costs, taxation exemptions and public school resources available to the private sector. $20 billion is a very conservative estimate indeed. What was $1 billion in 1987 has now multiplied at least 20 times over. Thank you very much. Uh, what people might not uh, remember is that the Labor Party was perhaps as bad, if not worse, than the Liberal Party, the Conservatives, in giving state aid to private schools. There was a good reason for this. 
um, they knew what it was like to take on the private sector and the Labor Party had been kept out of power by the old DLP, uh, so-called Democratic Labor Party, but um, really it was a front for Archbishop Manick Santa Maria and um, the Catholic sector back in the day. But something very interesting happened on Wednesday last, the 9th of March. The DLP is no more. They couldn't get enough members to actually be registered as a political party. Wow. Well, it might have gone, but uh, the ideas of the DLP and the members like uh, Mr Abbott, for example, have gone into the Labor Party and have also gone into the Conservative Party. It's done its job. It's got enormous billions of dollars into the religious sector and into the private school sector, and uh, its usefulness is probably at an end anyway. But um, I think it's just very interesting uh, historical fact that people might uh, find amusing in a way, but sad as well. But um, we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back and we'll talk about a very important book that has just been published. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason to be screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not, you know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. 3CR. Well, we're back with the Dogs Programme. And uh, we've been reminding you of Ray Nelson in 1987-88 and uh, when state aid reached $1 billion, although it's reached well over $20 billion now. But um, people of that generation might also remember Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. That was a very famous uh, play that people were expected to study. But um, there has come out a book uh, written by... Tom Greenwood and Chris Bonner, and this book is called Waiting for Gonski, a great book about the sorry tale of school funding. And this that we're going to read to you now is a book review by Rachel Wilson, the Associate Professor in Education at the University of Sydney, uh, that appeared in the conversation in the last week. And uh, the dogs are certainly going to invest in this book and anybody who is interested in education, public education in Australia, might wish to do so also. But Sol's going to lead us off, and um, Dale and Kim are also going to help us to come to terms with this very interesting review. Over to you, Sorrel. Thanks, Jean. So you may think not another article on school funding, 
But this important story has to be told, and the book, Waiting for Gonski, How Australia Failed Its Schools, should be read by every parent, economist and Australian committed to the fair go. The title is apt, and who would have thought a book on school funding would be a riveting read? Authors Tom Greenwell and Chris Bonner have all the angles covered. What went wrong? The much-loaded Gonski reforms recommended 10 years ago have not been effectively enacted. The book provides a clear account of how it all went wrong in the Gonski we got and post-mortem analysis chapters. Rather than levelling the playing field, it is clear the system has become more unfair. More funding has gone to less needy schools. Government funding to non-government schools grew at five times the rate of funding for government schools over the past decade. The review introduced the concept of the schooling resource standard. The review panel said this was the funding needed as the starting point for transparent, fair, financially sustainable and educationally effective resourcing. The SRS uses a base funding amount for each student plus loadings for the particular school and student needs. The majority of government schools are yet to be fully funded to the SRS. At the same time, many non-government schools are overfunded well beyond the standard and fees sit on top of this government funding. A 2019 federal government review of needs-based funding makes it clear government schools' needs are not being met and the system lacks transparency. New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria and Tasmania committed to reach 75% of SRS funding for government schools beyond 2023. New South Wales and Tasmania will reach 75% in 2027, Victoria in 2028 and Queensland in 2032. A quote from the then Gratan Institute School Program Director, Peter Goss, is instructive. The federal government has locked in a model where every private school will get fully funded by 2023, whereas very few government schools will ever get fully funded. By 2030, we're going to be having the same argument, and it's all predictable from now. Over to you, Kim. Thanks, Sorrel. While many schools are still waiting to receive the Gonski needs-based funding, Greenwell and Bonner make it clear there was also a sense of waiting in the lead-up to the review and the 2011 report. Pre-Gonski history provides important insights, including coverage of mistakes in the original establishment of Australia's inclusive public education system. The system wasn't really inclusive and created the first unlevel playing field with well-resourced free education for most alongside struggling Catholic schools. This changed after the 1960s when the private sector successfully lobbied for funding, but as the authors point out, one unlevel playing field replaced another. The 1973 Carmel report followed, but was criticised because, as Simon Marginson wrote in 1984, the report did not develop an understanding of the dynamics of the dual system of schooling that operates in Australia and failed to go to the roots of inequalities in schooling. Gonski also failed on this score. Bonner and Greenwell point out this criticism also applies to the Gonski Review. Rather than tackle the complexities of the public-private system, Gonski left untouched the issues of school fees and very different school sector obligations, operations and accountabilities. Inequities in school operations, including enrolment policies, were not addressed. 
While recommending adequate funding for schools where students had greater needs, the review did not question or seek to resolve while the, why these students concentrated within disadvantaged schools, most of them government schools. The segregation of schools has since increased. Both the OECD and UNICEF have identified this as a key weakness in Australian schooling. Greenwell and Bonner point, out to this, point to the significance of the review's focus on the impact of peers on student achievement in a structure where fees sort and segregate students into different schools on the basis of socio-educational advantage. Bonner says, the review panel couldn't or chose not to join the dots between this phenomenon and Australia's increasingly mediocre levels of student achievement. Gonski Review panel member Ken Boston now agrees and attributes much of our educational woes to weaknesses in the report and failures of implementation. Noting the model was to be needs-based and sector-blind, he says quite the opposite has occurred. Waiting for Gonski is a riveting but depressing account of how that happened. Drawing on interviews with key figures, the authors describe the manoeuvrings to get the funding legislation passed, the distorting of Gonski's recommendations, the intensity of the activities of lobby groups, and the eventual sabotage of the remnants of Gonski that managed to get over the line. Over to you, Dale. Thank you. Students and Australia continue to miss out. The story is complete with a coming-of-age personal drama highlighting the impacts of funding on two young students as they move through their schooling. It is important to remember that many thousands of children have completed all their schooling in the post-Gonski era without the funding deemed necessary for the system to be educationally effective. The pathways of those lives have missed out on the educational enrichment funding to the school resourcing school resource standard would have brought. Alongside Waiting for Gonski, a Why Money Does Matter conference marked the 10th anniversary with sobering analysis, which is available at the Centre for Public Education's website, uh, educa public education research website uh, conferences page. Uh, Gonski made needs-based equity funding part of our vocabulary, but not part of our system. It's clear that action to fully implement true needs-based funding is urgently needed. Waiting for Gonski ends with a call to action. For our education system to thrive, nothing short of substantial structural change will do. Greenwell and Bonner also argue public funding brings public obligations and a public contract is needed requiring non-government schools to operate with policies comparable to those of government schools. Such an approach would level the playing field, which would undoubtedly strengthen Australian education and our economy. Do we have to wait much longer? Let's do something while we have the chance. Let's make the most of it before it's too late, which is a quote from Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. But I think... Waiting for Gonski is quite applicable in one of the most telling stage directions that's in Waiting for Godot. There's Didi and Gogo, the two main characters in Waiting for Godot. They say, shall we go? Yes, let's go. And then the stage direction says, they don't move. <laughs> Good on you, Dale. Yes, well, unfortunately, um, even the Save Our Schools people are still hung up on the whole idea of needs. There never has been a needs policy. The church school interest is not interested in needs. The dogs have always said that the only way forward is, in fact, backwards. 
there should be no taxpayer funding of schools which are not public in purpose and public in outcome and public in access, above all, public in access. They are talking about a structural change and saying that private schools should have obligations. Uh, they should actually, given that they are so extensively publicly funded, be prepared to be public schools. Otherwise, they should reject the public funding and be voluntary, uh, self-managed, self-funding, independent schools. Uh, that is the only answer to this problem. And uh, our forefathers in the 19th century understood that very well. But apparently we're taking a lot longer this century to understand it. But the dogs will keep uh, saying this and that's what we're here for. But we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back with some more interesting material from Trevor Cobalt about how, in fact, money does work in education. I think Welcome to Country is a very dangerous concept and initiative. I really don't know where Welcome to Country even merged from. I know that I don't think it was a, obviously an Aboriginal initiative. I think obviously governments had uh, introduced that as they were pacifying our flag of resistance. You know, the idealism that lies behind that obviously is so that white people can feel a sense that they're more guests and they've got a right of ownership and to be here. If we're going to continuously welcome them to country, what that does, it rectitudes the fact of the moral racism issues in which they perpetrate against our people. Because how can we be talking about all these other issues and then compromise a hypocrisy in our own selves to welcome these murderers and these uh, slave traders and this barbaric sense of what they've done to occupy Australia on one hand and, and welcome them on the other? You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program and we've been talking about Gonski and millions of dollars and billions of dollars in education. And, of course, the catch cry of the Conservative government in Canberra is that we have given an awful lot of money. Yes, they have to education and things are getting worse. So there must be something wrong with the teachers. There isn't anything wrong with the teachers. There's a lot wrong with the policies of the governments in Canberra as well as the opposition. Uh, perhaps the Greens might have a better, better policy, but anybody who is giving money to um, private schools is going to be in trouble with lack of uh, equality in our schools and also uh, a lack of standards uh, internationally. We'll never catch up with Finland and other, other uh, countries that don't do the silly thing and give taxpayers money to segregated schools. But um, money does work in education, particularly when you're dealing with children who are disadvantaged. Let's hear from Dale. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, this is an article from Trevor Cobold uh, from the 7th of March of this year. Money works in education. Evidence that money works in education continues to accumulate. A new study published in the latest edition of the American Economic Journal, Economic Policy, shows that increased expenditure on schools improves student outcomes. 
it found substantial positive effects of increased spending on test scores, dropout rates, and post-secondary enrolment. The study analysed the relationship between school spending and student outcomes in the US state of Wisconsin. It found that a 3% increase in operational expenditure per student per year over 10 years resulted in an increase in test scores of 3 to 4 percentage points, a 9% reduction in school dropout rates and a 10% increase in the students who completed high school and enrolled in post-secondary education. The study concluded that the results are driven at least partially, by a combination of reductions in class sizes and teacher attrition, additional licensed staff, and increases in teacher experience and compensation. The study exploited a unique aspect of the Wisconsin school financial system to, anal to analyze the impact of increased expenditure. Since 1993-94, state-imposed revenue limits have capped the total amount of revenue that a school district in Wisconsin can raise for operating expenses. If a district wishes to exceed these caps, it must ask for voter approval in a local referendum. In practice, district residents who vote in favour of the incentive agree to a predetermined increase in their property taxes. Since 93, roughly 1,200 referenda to override revenue limits have been held. The study compared the revenue limits and total expenditures of school districts where a similar initiative at some point in time was narrowly successful to those where the initially was narrowly defeated. It found that relative to districts where an initiative was narrowly defeated, school districts that barely pass a referendum spend roughly $300 or 3% more per student each year in the years following the election. Two-thirds of the additional resources were spent on reductions in student-staff ratios, increases in average teacher salaries, and increases in average teacher experience, potentially due to de decreased teacher attrition. The remainder was spent on support services for students to improve attendance, health services such as medical, dental and nursing, and career guidance services. The study found its results were similar to those of two other studies of different school grades and institutional contexts. It conservatively estimated that an additional $1,000 per student in operational expenditures increased 10th grade math scores by roughly 23% of a standard deviation, which is highly significant. The results of the study are consistent with those of many other recent studies of school expenditure and outcomes. 25 other studies since 2015 have showed increased expenditure on schools, improved student outcomes, especially for disadvantaged students. The evidence shows that additional school resources improve short and medium term outcomes, such as test scores and educational attainment, and long, longer term outcomes, such as wages, employment and income mobility. As the new study notes, there's a growing consensus in the economics of education literature that increases in school funding generally improves students' outcomes. Well, there you are. That really very much that they should send this to Mr Tudge and uh, Mr Roberts in Canberra straight away I think. You notice that the, the expenditure is on teachers 
and um, it's the teachers who are who are holding our public system up and they're doing a wonderful job too. Well, he says that uh, in Australia, critics ignore the extensive evidence that money works in education. Instead, they claim that international test results for mostly yearly year 10 students have declined while funding has increased. However, it's clear that large funding increases have been badly misdirected to the school sector least in need. They also ignore the fact that year 12 results have improved over the past 20 years and that nearly three quarters of students don't fully try in the international tests. Uh, Private schools have been lavish money over the past decade, while public schools have been denied the funding needed to make a difference for the vast majority of disadvantaged students. Combined Commonwealth and state government funding per student adjusted for inflation for private schools has increased by nearly five times that for public schools over the past 10 years. A dramatic change in school funding policies at both Commonwealth and state levels is needed to ensure that public schools are fully funded to meet the challenges they face. The forthcoming federal election provides a new opportunity to act on the volume of evidence that money works in education, especially for disadvantaged students. Oh, thank you very much. That was a very interesting article that uh, Trevor Colbert has come up with. But um, we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back with um, uh, some news from the TAFE sector. There's kind of a lot of a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very, very sort of different forms and very, you know, important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture of normative, heteronormative family life, but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity. You know, it's around the family life in the suburb, as opposed to many, you know, single individuals who have shared queer family, both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio.3CR Community Radio 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Well, you're still listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. The Council for the Defence of Government Schools, we're here for public education, and the TAFE sector, or at any rate, the public TAFE sector is uh, part of our interest, and Sorrel is going to tell us another reason for not voting for Mr Morrison in the coming federal election. Over to you, Sorrel. Thanks, Jean. There's just so many reasons not to vote for him. Uh, This article is about the devastating impact of the Morrison government's failure for TAFE. 
New data released today highlights that the Morrison government's failure to take responsibility for TAFE has entrenched underfunding, excessive workloads for staff, and greater uncertainty for students. The data drawn from the Australian Education Union's most recent state of our TAFE's survey shows the devastating impact of a decade of cuts to TAFE funding. Key findings include 75% of TAFE teachers are experiencing increased workloads, 65% of TAFE teachers say their workload is unmanageable more than half of the time, 83% of TAFE teachers report that their institution had closed courses in the past three years with lack of funding as the most commonly cited reason. 70% of TAFE teachers report decreases in their department's budget in the past two years. Almost half of all TAFE teachers reported increased class size in the past two years. 64% of TAFE teachers say that they had their hours shaved from courses they teach with no reduction in course content. 80% of TAFE teachers report that they do not believe students studying today are receiving the same quality of education as they did two years ago. 57% have felt pressure from management to pass students that might not be competent. Australian Education Union Federal President Karina Haythorpe described the findings as damning. These findings are shocking and show Australia's TAFE sector is under enormous strain from a decade of funding cuts perpetrated by the Morrison government, Ms Haythorpe said. We have TAFE teachers working excessive workloads under increasingly difficult conditions, grappling with larger class sizes and being expected to, to deliver content within slashed teaching hours. The data also shows how COVID, the COVID pandemic has exacerbated the detrimental impact of the underinvestment in TAFE. With TAFE teachers reporting working up to the equivalent of a whole day unpaid each week with little to no support from their institutions. Ultimately, it is TAFE students who are impacted as their courses are cut and campuses closed at a time when the demand for vocational education is at an all-time high due to the critical skills shortages in many industries. The findings are based on responses from 1,563 AEU TAFE division members and with responses received from every TAFE institution in Australia. TAFE plays an incredibly important role in our nation. Not only does TAFE help prepare students for future employment, ensure businesses have access to a highly trained workforce and help industries address skill gaps, the sector also contributes to an estimated $92.5 billion to our economy every year, Ms Haythorpe said. But years of the Morrison government's funding cuts, privatisation and contestable funding settings have failed TAFE. And that is having a detrimental impact on staff and students across the nation. TAFE is a high quality public provider of vocational education, and it must be supported by government to do what it does best, teach the nation's students and prepare them for work and life. The next federal government must guarantee a minimum of 70% of total government funding for public TAFE system. By restoring investment and rebuilding the system, 
we can ensure TAFE teachers are properly supported to deliver high-quality courses to students with state-of-the-art equipment and fit-for-purpose facilities. That is what is possible if TAFE is recognised in its rightful place as the anchor institution for vocational education in Australia. Well, thank you very much, Sorrel. Uh, that's very interesting. Uh, and, of course, I can't understand why Mr Morrison, who's talking about uh, the new economy and uh, people, workers that are well qualified, why he is pouring millions into the TAFE sector at the moment. But I'm afraid the, uh, they don't seem to have um, much sense, these people in, uh, in Canberra, do they? I can't see past a bit of ideology. Uh, back in the 1980s, uh, that's my view. Very sad indeed. But we'll have a bit of a break and we'll be back with our American expert. Jeff has been on the prowl around the internet. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick Secondary State schools are great. Harkaway Primary School. Sunshine North Primary School. They're really concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. Like you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the weekly assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words, it is actually... So so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses, refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long, don't necessarily start off with a great Positive relationships with each other, with teachers and with the community. And they run a a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast and so there's, there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 9419 State schools are great schools. Great state schools. Well, uh, you're still listening to the Dogs program, I hope, and it's over to Jeff uh, on the American situation. Over to you, Jeff. 
Thanks, Jean. And if you're wondering why we're looking at America when we're really concerned with Australian public schools, it's because in so many ways, the Conservatives in Australia look to America and the Conservatives there, and they dream of having their world imposed on us uh, so that they can extend their kleptocracy of, that they apply to our public schools and our TAFE system and our universities who are all suffering. So um, looking into America, I've been... There's, there's an extraordinary amount of, of um, cultural wars going on in education in America and um, some of the tools that have, that have happened by the, used by the Conservatives recently have just exploded into the schools um, and they're being prosecuted at every level, at state level, at towns, public meetings, they're going right down to parent groups. Um, and they're working on their conservative agendas. This is, um, to start, I have to contextualise this slightly. Um, there's a, an organisation called PEN America who, um, they, they've been around since 1922 and they are headquartered in New York City and they're a non-profit organisation that works to defend and celebrate free expression uh, in the United States and worldwide uh, of literature and human rights, essentially. And they have published a, uh, just a short article, which I'm just going to use to introduce the concept of educational gag orders that they've that that have been happening in America. So, since between January yeah, and well, September, you're talking about gag orders. Is this, Pit is this Putin's Russia or is this America? No, this is in America. And so, between January and September, I'm assuming January seventh and September. 2021, 24 legislatures across the United States introduced 54 separate bills intended to restrict teaching and training in kindergarten year 12 schools, higher education and state agencies and institutions. The majority of these bills target discussions of race, racism, gender and American history, banning a series of prohibited or divisive concepts for teachers and trainers operating in K-12 schools. K-12 is their code for kindergarten year 12. Public universities and workplace settings. These bills appear designed to chill academic and education discussion, discussions and impose government dictates on teaching and learning. In short, they're educational gag orders. This uh, is what Morrison's trying to do in these culture wars with history, isn't it? That's well, uh, with uh, the black uh, well, uh, black ban or something. Yeah, they don't well, want to. The black armband it. history. Yeah, yeah. There's, they've yeah. touched on it here from Howard's days, talking about Keith Winchuttle and all that sort of stuff, but. Um, anyway, that's a longer article. I'm not going, but in the wake of George, the murder of George Floyd, they've they've ramped up this idea of critical race theory as being a dangerous idea in America that can undermine American life. So as a result, conservative groups have ganged together and, and they organise discussions and they talk about the woke agenda and that sort of thing. Now, what I'm look, reading out here is an example of this. It's on Diana Ravitch's blog, which we, we really mine her blog regularly because she's an extraordinary historian of education in the United States. But she's actually um, referring to a, uh, an article by Jennifer Berkshire, or Berkshire, she'd probably say it, um, and in, um, uh, in, in the forum, which is a... Uh, African-American Policy Forum, um, and it's an article about a guy called Brett Stevens. Sorry, this is such a long context, uh, but Brett Stevens is an American journalist. He's a neoconservative journalist, not a Trump supporter, interestingly, uh, but he, he is uh, 
an ultra conservative uh, uh, private school educated journalist uh, works in the, for the Washington, the Wall Street Journal, I believe. Anyway, he go he's gone to speak at one of these meetings that they have over there, and they talk about uh, illiberalism being on the march. And I'm just dipping into this article, but people paying three hundred dollars, three hundred and fifty dollars US a pop to uh, to attend a weekend commiserating over the rising tide of wokeness in the nation's elite schools. So these are parents groups, um, you know, uh, probably a bit of a uh, collection of um, school principals and definitely some of the neoconservatives who are interested in changing the American school system from public education into national elite schools and, and changing the culture. So he's gone there and... What they're now paying is $500 bounties for teachers who violate the education gag orders. So they're actually getting kids to, um, to, to tell on the teachers who maybe would mention anything about slavery, um, talk about um, gender issues or uh, other uh, race theory, critical race theory, which is the, the American... Uh, the conservatives don't seem to actually understand what that is, but it's basically just a discussion of the fact that there are race problems in America, which anyone could probably tell. But they're literally putting bounties on teachers who violate this order. Um, and uh, apparently they aim for diversity of thought because they're scared that the woke culture is killing debate. Uh, ironically, they're the ones who are literally reporting on teachers who are using, who are bringing up uh, controversial stuff in um, in school. So um, just anyway, just part of this article. Um, what these parents saw as the over-the-top response by many private schools to the murder of George Floyd that launched them into a full-scale revolt. Hundreds of years, parents have sent their children off to the elite precincts of Phillips and Hotchkiss, securing the knowledge that the Ivy League, League awaits. And now all of a sudden, these same schools wanted them to feel bad about their privilege. But the outrage didn't end there. As the proceedings at Weekend-Long Parents Unite CONFAB made clear, anti-wokeness is a slippery slope. What began as a howl of protest against critical race theory has quickly built to include a seemingly endless litany of conservative complaints about what gets taught in schools and by whom. As the conference wore on, grievance piled up upon fresh grievance. Classrooms were being racialised, sexualised and politicised, as one speaker puts it. Kids were coming home defeated and deflated, charged another. Schools no longer teach real-world knowledge, complained one of the student attendees. The vast majority of, majority of classmates don't know the difference between a stock and a bond, he reported in astonishment. Wouldn't they gain more from learning about that than about how to combat racism? A panel discussion with the rather too on the nose title Under the Hood quickly moved on from alleged excesses of diversity, equity, and inclusion to fresh outrages like social and emotional learning. This brand of instruction, it turns out, was actually brought into schools at the behest of businesses looking to recruit future knowledge economy workers outfitted with soft skills like team building and collaboration. But in the hothouse culture wars, reveries of Parents United. SEL, uh, which is the school uh, uh, social and emotional learning, has taken its place along uh, critical race theory as another sin sinister form of wokest mind control, masquerading as sensitivity and empathy. What began as a howl of protest against critical race theory has quickly built 
to include a seemingly endless, endless litany, uh, litany of conservative complaints about what gets taught in schools and by whom. Then there's gender ideology. Erica Sanzi, who has herself recently transitioned from transition from Obama-era charter school advocate to parents' rights crusader, explained from the stage parents who might be too fearful to speak out about critical race theory are going to revolt when they realise that the schools are trying to turn their that the schools are trying to turn their kids trans. What or whom specifically is carrying out all of this indoctrination? Teachers' unions are to blame naturally, along with the graduate schools of education, a perennial source of political ire dating back to the early 19th century, that private schools are overwhelmingly union-free and do not require the credentials dispensed by schools of education, seemed not to matter here at all. Most of all, though, it was young teachers, social justice warriors all, who bore the brunt of the ire. These self-styled revolutionaries eschew not just the classic texts, but all texts, one panellist bemoaned, Older, tenured teachers, the same reliable villains who've been depicted as the enemy of progress throughout the modern era of education reform, of reform are evidently now the last remaining bulwark against wokeism. Um, for parents rebelling against leftist indoctrination in the public schools, politicians have seized on a favourite conservative cure, school choice. This, too, was a baffling refrain at the Parents United Conference. Private school parents have already ex exercised that option. Indeed, one was striking... Uh, plaint, one striking plaint running through the sessions in Boston was that parents who send their children to elite private schools are uniquely powerless, victimised by the meritocracy itself. To voice their grievances is to risk not just their youngsters' spot at Groton or Deerfield Academy, but also to jeopardise the great brass ring at the end of the prep school carousel entry in, entree into the Ivy League. Desperate times then call for desperate measures. Kerry McDonald, a senior education fellow at the Liberty Loving Think Tank Foundation for Economic Education, proposed that instead of continuing to support school, parents return to the time-honoured tradition of teaching their children themselves. But rather than going into despairing cultural retreat mode in the manner of many latter-day evangelical homeschoolers, the refugees from woke prep academies can count on the largesse and thought-leading cachet of Silicon Valley. Mark Andresen has been talking a lot about homeschooling, McDonald reported, citing the great market, market imprimatur of Netscape founding founder-turned-venture capital. Oh, well, you can bet your bottom dollar there's going to be dollars at the end of it, isn't That's there? right. That's what it's about. And anyway, I, I realise that's a long article. I'm, I'm sorry, but it's just a precy of what they're trying to do here. They're trying to privatise our public education systems, thus destroying any chance of, uh, of deeper thought, deeper critical theory, challenging our children with all sorts of concepts and ideas. They'd love to gag them. Well, I think that's very, I think the very fact that it's possible to have a gag order that deals with schools and teachers uh, speaks for itself. And this is not Putin's Russia. This is America. It's tragic, isn't it? Now is some good news. Now is the time for the great state school. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program.
And this week's great state school is Churchill Primary School. And the principal says, Churchill Primary School is situated in the heart of Churchill. The school has a well-maintained native garden and spacious grounds. Recently, the school has undergone upgrades, which has include, included a new playground and a synthetic basketball court. The main administration area and four classrooms were upgraded in 2020 with a new $2.4 million building. This new building features modern facilities to deliver 21st century learning to our students. Churchill Primary School has high expectation of our students with a strong focus on learning growth. We use the most effective teaching methods which align with evidence-based practice in our classrooms. Our school is a professional learning community where teachers work collaboratively with to use data to plan for student learning. Our school has a strong academic focus and prioritizes student well-being. Our staff are committed to building positive relationships with students. Our school uses the Berry Street education model, which is a proactive approach to teaching emotional regulation. This model is embedded in everything we do and is also explicitly taught in all grade levels. Churchill Primary School has highly skilled staff who support students with learning differences and are dedicated to providing an inclusive environment for all. The school uses an explicit direct instruction approach to teaching. We teach the five components of literacy using this approach based on the soundest research into the science of reading. Our NAPLAN results in literacy have increased significantly using this approach and we expect this trend to continue. The five components to reading are as follows. Phonological awareness, vocabulary, fluency, comprehension and phonics. Our school has an engaging language program with Mandarin taught from prep to six. Our students also learn music, performing arts, visual arts, and PE. Extracurricular activities are important for students to pursue their interests. They also help to foster a sense of belonging, school connectedness, and school pride. Students have the opportunity to compete in a wide range of sports, including athletics, basketball, swimming, hockey, soccer, and cross-country running. We also compete in Australia's largest performing arts competition, Wakakiri. Churchill Primary School values a strong relationship partnership with our families and the local community. We provide opportunities for parent involvement and hold regular showcases where students share their learning. And that's from the principal, Jackie Burrows. Uh, now onto some statistics about the school. The school has 150 pupils, 77 boys and 73 girls. The ICSIA value of the school is 933, well below the average of 1,000. The students are representative of the Latrobe community, however. This is a poor community with a tertiary education institution nearby and power stations about to close, offering parents an uncertain future. 4% have parents from the upper, 25% in income, 9% in the second highest, 27% from the third quartile, and 60% from the poorest 25% of the community. 4% of the pupils speak a language other than English, and 8% are of Indigenous parentage. This is a school of disadvantaged students with dedicated principal and teachers. It costs the taxpayer $17,688, above the Gonski resource standard, to educate a student at this school. The school receives only $576,797 from the federal government and $2.26 million from the state government, $28,380 from fees and $25,720 from private fundraising. But the capital grants in the last three years have only been 113,278. All this public and private money is money well spent. The NAPLAN results of these disadvantaged students are more than just fine. They're well above average in writing and numeracy and the rest is just fine. Yes, so that's a very interesting little school indeed. 
Um, it's up there near um, the, the old Gippsland Institute. Um, it's it's like a, um, a suburb, as you find in the Lacho Valley. You have these suburbs in the middle of the country just plonked down. And um, the resources early, when it was first put there, uh, were very limited. It was near the Hazelwood Power Station, which is closing. So um, it's, uh, as you can see from those numbers, it's a disadvantaged community with a few wealthy people floating around, probably coming in from the local farms. But um, they're doing a great job, aren't they? Uh, those MAPLAN results are quite extraordinary when you look at them. Uh, but um, I thought people would be interested in a, a little school that was further out. But our time has run out, and I'd like to thank Dale and Sol and Kim and Jeff for keeping the program going this week. And uh, if you want to find out more about us, go to www.adogs.info. But from the dogs this week, it's bye for now. Die.